So, Renato, was there any teeth to the legal strategy that Trump's lawyers cooked up before January 6th? Uh, it's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So, Renato, we got another little tidbit in the January 6th case recently, which was one of the memos that Trump's lawyers presented to him um, outlining the legal strategy that would get him across the finish line on January 6th. And this one is written by Ken Cheesebro. And I have to say, like, only in this saga can there be a guy with the last name Cheesebro, but okay. Uh- <laughs> it's not Chesbro. It's actually Cheesebro. Oh, is it Chesbro? Because I've been saying I don't saying know. Cheesebro. I just, I, I don't know. Okay. Okay. Let's keep going. It's, it looks like Cheesebro. I've been saying, can we say Cheesebro? You want to sure, say why not? I don't know. Why not? Cheesebro like seems cheese. more appropriate, to be honest. But, and he is, I believe, co-conspirator five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. If you're if you're in following along in the indictment, he's co-conspirator five. In fact, let's let's review who the co-conspirators are. Co-conspirator one is Rudy Giuliani. Co-conspirator two is John Eastman. Co-conspirator three is Sidney Clark, or Sidney uh, Powell. Sidney Powell, the Kraken. The Kraken. Um, co-conspirator four is Jeffrey Clark. Co-conspirator five is Ken Cheese Chesbro. Um, and I don't think we know exactly who co-conspirator six is. Is that correct? Yeah. Isn't that uh, like a political strategist? And so it's, it's a political just- strategist. And, and I mean, I thought it could be Roger Stone or Steve Bannon maybe, but. I yeah. I've heard, I've heard arguments that it's Steve Bannon. Some people suggested like Miller, but I don't, he seemed like he's, he's like testifying with the January 6th committee and stuff. I, I doubt yeah. Anyway, did you see any significant differences between this new memo? And I think it's, it's referred to as the Wisconsin memo in, in the indictment, mm-hmm. I believe. Any big difference between this and the general legal strategy that was presented by John Eastman? who also wrote, I think, a a two-page memo on how this was all going to unfold once these fake slates of electors got presented to Congress. This is almost sort of like the preliminary to lead up. This is like part one, and I guess John Eastman's was sort of like maybe a part two, but I don't know how you think about it. Yeah, Eastman was further down the line. I mean, it's interesting when you read Ken Chesbro's memo. One thing I'll just say, because we actually got some comments. We do read your comments and and uh, and all the feedback that we get from all of you. And I know some of you are like, please explain this memo on the next episode. So we've heard you. Um, you know, this is not a typical legal memo uh, or anything that you would deliver to a client. I'll just say that as somebody who delivers legal advice to clients every day. Like um, it's, it's bizarre. Uh, and, and part of it is 
you know, I would say this is early on. Uh, one thing I'll just note, it's early on. Um, he doesn't really know a lot of the facts yet. He's basically like, look, if, if we don't concede the election, we need to do all these different things. We're going to file lawsuits everywhere. We're going to delay the vote. We're going to try to focus attention on these issues. There's a sense to which, and I think this is something you had mentioned, Asha, you're in one of your initial impressions. It's not entirely a legal strategy. There's a PR or political element to all of it. But it's it's definitely earlier in time. The point I'm trying to make is Eastman, I feel like, was making a lot of recommendations when everyone realized there was no hope. Uh, you know, John Eastman, it's like Obi-Wan Kenobi. John Eastman was the only hope or whatever right. at that point. Chesbro is like early on, earlier on, he's like, hey, maybe we can have some successful lawsuits. Maybe this could happen or that could happen. But here's the general strategy. Like, let me lay out sort of what this looks like. I don't necessarily recommend it. I'm not necessarily advising you do it, but here's the general overall strategy of what one could do if one wanted to try to overthrow the election. Yeah. So great point in terms of the timeline. So this memo is written on December 6th, 2020. Um, and as you mentioned, I think John Eastman's is later, but uh, December 6th is eight days before electors in states had to uh, vote and certify their electoral results. And so just a summary for those people who haven't read the memo, though, we can include a link, um, I think, when we post the podcast. Um, this is basically laying out, as, as Renato just said, that um, assuming that the Trump-Pence campaign doesn't concede how to set the stage so that Trump can still win with 270 electoral votes. And basically what he's outlining is a strategy where electors in six states are going to meet and vote for Trump and Pence, that his electors are going to meet and vote. Um, and if you're following along on my self-coup chart, um, those six states are listed at the bottom. Um, and importantly, that the way to create, the way to do this, the way to allow for these electors to meet and vote for Trump, even though he didn't win, was to make sure that there was pending litigation occurring in all six of those states so that they could point to something that says, hey, look, this is still contested. This is still up in the air. We don't really know what the votes are, so we're just creating this backup option. And to your point, Renato, I would not call it a PR strategy. To me, this is an information warfare strategy. This is a way of shaping the perception around the election in order to create a space where going down this road, this road appears to be legitimate, even when they, I mean, he's not actually pointing to any basis for litigation, uh, real basis. He's just saying, we just need to have litigation in place, whatever the case may be. And we know that they later filed frivolous lawsuits for precisely this reason. Yeah, that's a very smart point, Asha. I agree with that. I think that one thing that underlies the entire memo is using the processes of government to manipulate 
um, the appearance of the situation. So stop, you know, one, one of the telling lines we see, like, stop the vote. Essentially have Pence try to stop the vote at a point where we're ahead in the, the count so that this way when we go to the Supreme Court, it looks like we're ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's purely like have the vice president manipulate the entire process on January 6th in terms of the counting of electoral votes in order to create some false appearance that we're in the lead when, of course, we've lost. Um, and so I think that, you know, he, he does, you know, in a number of points, you know, you know, he says, for example, you know, we need to at least to keep our options open. Essentially, we need to have these fake electors file. Essentially, he doesn't really have any stra- any knowledge of fraud. He's not outlining some strategy to legal argument that's going to change the, the outcome. It's about, I agree, it's about creating the appearance that there's some legitimate question about the election. And he basically talks a lot about trying to focus attention on issues. The reason I say that that's not a typical legal memo, I want to just make sure re- our listeners understand this uh, and viewers understand this because it's it's imp- I think an important distinction. You know, lawyers generally do are not supposed to and don't draw up legal plans and lawsuits just to sort of change narratives. Like the, you're not supposed to. I understand Donald Trump files lawsuits to get people to write stories about them, but that's not, that's actually an abuse of the legal process. Um, and I, so even if you, if there's a memo like, Hey, I don't advise this, but you could file a lawsuit just to make someone look bad. That that's actually a no, no as a lawyer, this goes way beyond that. Like, this is like, let's totally screw with the confidence that the American people have in our system of government and try to use various pain points to, um, you know, kind of poke at and create issues to um, to highlight the um, perhaps uh, amb- ambiguities in the transfer of power in order to sow doubt, in order to change the outcome of the election and overturn the election. Yeah, it's using courts as propaganda. And there's actually a specific term for this. It's called legitimizing propaganda. So legitimizing propaganda is where you have some third party or entity, which has a lot of credibility, put out a message or create a message that then you can point to as corroborating your false narrative. So it's like the Jim Jordan committee that puts out like little sound, you know, it's like there's a congressional witness saying this Fox News talking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is that exactly. I would say the best example that I would use about this is the Ukraine phone call that Mm. when Trump asked Zelensky on the down low to announce an investigation into the Bidens, what he wanted. And remember, he didn't really he didn't ask for him to initiate an investigation. He just wanted him to announce one on CNN, because once Ukraine, random other country, not the United States, uh, says, hey, we believe these, you know, Joe and Hunter Biden are corrupt, then the Trump campaign could say, see, look, we were right. He's being investigated there. We should be investigating him here or something like that. And so in similar way, what Chesbro is saying here is let's get these, uh, you know, lawsuits started because that will provide corroboration through the court system that what we're doing is necessary and and based on fact. And, you know, and he goes even further. If you look in the memo, he literally has a talking point or he, he literally has an outline point that says, 
Number two, messaging about the December 14th vote as routine. In other words, not only did he want to present um, the meeting and voting of these alternate slates of electors as you know legally justified, he wanted to send the message to the public that this is routine, this is what we do. And uh, he then enlists, uh, kind of cherry picks a bunch of, you know, dicta from court decisions like Bush v. Gore. He miscites uh, Professor Larry Tribe saying that, you know, that this is all, this is this is how it should work if, if things are completely um, still unresolved. Yeah, I mean, that portion of it almost read to me where he's going through all these sort of, you know, in his mind, liberals who are writing op-eds and so on. It's like justifying what we're doing, like, you know, by this point, the memo you read it, you're like, he's concerned that someone reading is like, wow, that's really evil. Okay. It's so, uh, you know, here's our justification for why we're doing it. And it's because they do it or they're, they're advocating for it. And it's interesting if you, you know, so I did read a little bit of Professor Tribe's, you know, he's very upset about this. Yeah. Uh, you know, his words on it. And basically, apparently, Chesbro at one point was a research assistant of his yeah. and sort of twisted it, twisted his, his basically, that's how he learned about, you know, all of the, the details of the Electoral Count Act and all of this back in 2000 during the Bush versus Gore era. And he's twisted in, in Professor Chai's view, his words. I, I mean, to me, I, I almost, to me, that's the least egregious part of it. Um, to me, the, the, to me, what is just astounding is you have a lawyer saying, you know, I don't really have any legal basis to file a lawsuit. I don't even know what we're vindicating here because I don't even know that you've been harmed in any way. Um, but here is a way of sowing great harm to the United States of America. I'm not saying you do it, but here's my roadmap. Do what you're going to do. Um, it's just very dangerous. It would be like essentially, you know, if I was telling uh, a, a client of mine like, hey, you know, I don't think that, I don't know whether the prosecutor's done anything wrong to you, but here's all sorts of ways you could totally f with his life. <laughs> like, here's yeah. a bunch of ways to do it. I'm not saying you should, but here's how you could do it. Here's all these like tricks that I understand because I'm a lawyer of how you can make this guy's life a living hell. And you know why? Are, you know, it, 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 and but I'm not saying you. I'm not. I'm not necessarily advising you do that. It's a very bold and controversial idea <laughs> to do this. Yeah, I think. I mean, you you summed it up. Well, earlier, where this is essentially a plan to undermine le American voters' faith in the legitimacy of our election when there was no reason to doubt the outcome of the election. And that's the key point here. And what we know is that, you know, tr their attempts from the indictment, we know that their attempts to get officials in these different states to provide more corroboration, to provide more legitimizing propaganda, you know, that they had found fraud or that they were relooking at it. You know, those people refused to do it um, on grounds that they were not going to violate their oaths, that they weren't going to make stuff up. Um, so this was really, you know, I, I think where, where it gets hard is, you know, there you, if there was actually a legitimate basis to go to court that would that would be an okay use of the court system it's it's the fact that these were fabricated 
um, places. And I just want to add, by the way, he doesn't say this in this memo, but remember that the end game also involved the Supreme Court finally providing the ultimate um, legitimizing propaganda, which was um, what John Eastman hoped was that when it went to the Supreme Court, after, you know, all of this crazy goes down and there's all these different uh, slates of electors that are up in the air, he believed, A, that he, that at least Justice Thomas would be willing to sign on to his whole independent state legislature theory, but that even if, you know, the other justices weren't, that ultimately they would punt on even ruling on it because they would determine that this was a political question, something that the courts don't get involved in and don't answer, and that they would just kick it back to Congress and, you know, the executive branch to figure out, which would have resulted in, um, had Pence gone along with this, in, you know, Pence executing the plan that Eastman concocted. Correct. And I mean, there is an element here where he thinks that, you know, it's because it's much earlier on, as we, I mentioned in the beginning, he thinks the Supreme Court might be involved and he talks about how to manipulate that. But it's too early because he doesn't even have any legal, th- you know, there's no viable legal theory, mm-hmm. in his, you know, in his mind of getting to the Supreme Court. He's at an earlier stage. Well, that's and that's where John Eastman comes in with this whole independent state legislature exactly. thing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I will say before before we turn to the next segment is. A lot of people are like, okay, is this guy going to prison or what's going on? It'll be interesting to see what um, Smith does with all of these crooked lawyers like Chesborough or Cheeseborough. Um, what I will say is that it, I, as somebody who has prosecuted and convicted lawyers, it's like not easy to do. They usually use these weasel words uh, like Cheeseborough does, and they they usually are not stupid enough to write down uh, their their crooked plans on a sheet of paper. Um, but um, it's certainly possible, but there are, it's, it's much more challenging than like some of the stuff that Smith has already taken on um, because they're basically just, they, he's going to claim like, look, this guy asked me for advice and interpret laws. I'm just giving him ideas. I'm not even advocating for them. <laughs> like I'm just telling him, here's, here's some, here are my thoughts. Uh, is that a crime? Is like a thought crime? That's that's how he'll. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just explaining that is the argument that he will give and that Smith would have to overcome. Yeah. And I just want to add on to that, that I think one of the challenges we have in the Trump era is how much is being said out loud. Like you said, this memo is put in black and white. And in fact, even as Cheesebro is saying that we should have these alternate slates of electors meet and vote for Trump and Pence. He's actually not advocating that they do it in secret. Um, he thinks they should do it in private because he doesn't want them to be disrupted. But he's like, we could invite the media. We could. And in other words, th- there there is a way in which they want to put a spotlight on it. And at the time, this was actually being reported and we knew about it. And I think there's always been this challenge that if people are doing things out in the open, that it can't be criminal. I mean, we found this with Trump, like he would like confess to obstruction on Twitter and it would be like, well, obviously that can't be, you know, a crime because he said he basically said he did it. Um, But they do. And the fact that it's put on paper or articulated or reported or tweeted does not mean that. It's not criminal, even, but we have in our minds that people only do commit crimes like in secret and they try to hide it all. Yeah, I think that's right. And I just think with lawyers, he's using 
as a protection, right? The mm-hmm. fact that I'm a lawyer and I'm just giving legal advice and so forth. He's, it's really not legal advice, but it's under the guise of giving legal advice. It's almost, it's, it's perverting the legal profession. It's using the knowledge you have as a lawyer to try to advise someone to do something that is not really legal advice at all. And Harold Coe, our former civil procedure professor and later dean of Yale Law School, always would tell incoming students, never let your skill exceed your virtue. And I would say that's exactly what these lawyers were doing here. So Asha, a lot has been going on in the federal uh, cases. I think that we could, we can, uh, you know, there's, there's other, there's other cases out there too, of course, and other developments because Trump's got so many issues. But I think in the January 6th case, um, you know, there've been a number of recent developments and there was a recent development in Mar-a-Lago, but maybe let's talk about January 6th first. I know we gave our initial reactions, but, you know, you and I have been talking a lot, I think, back and forth about um, you know, I think our thoughts of how this is going to play out, especially since a number of the co-conspirators haven't even been indicted yet. Yeah. What do you make of that? It's a great question. <laughs> I think um, I, I think one thing I would say is a few things. Typically, if you would indict everyone, you're going to indict up front. You'd indict them in one indictment for a couple of reasons. One is having having defendants who have different positions on things in the same trial is generally good for the prosecution because they point fingers at each other. If they don't, if their stories don't match up, then the jury is going to just discount all of them. Um, Plus it helps from an evidentiary perspective, because even though the jury gets warned that let's say a particular document is only coming in as against Eastman, you know, it's not like they they can unhear it. And so they're going to see all the evidence. I'm just being very real about how this all plays out at a trial. So prosecutors love joint trials. Judges love joint trials because then they try one case instead of three or four or five. So the, the, everybody loves the joint trial other than the defense. Um, so, you know, I, I presumed that Smith had kind of split off Trump from the others to just make this go faster. I think we may have talked about that uh, previously. Um, but I think a, an open question is, will he indict all of these folks? Because... Trump's got a number of defenses in this case. It's much, it's going to be more of a challenge for uh, Smith than the Mar-a-Lago case was purely on the evidence. Um, and then, you know, these other co-conspirators, they're in a different spot. We just talked about cheese, bro. You know, he's, you know, from his, he's going to say, look, I'm a lawyer, wrote a memo. You know, I'm not out there, you know, inciting insurrections or doing anything crazy. I'm just, I just wrote a memo. That's the way he's going to present it. I'm not saying that that's the truth, but that's, that's how he's going to, that's going to be his argument. And so it's a different kind of case for Smith to take on. And, you know, he has to really decide for himself, like how, how, how much energy and resources does he really want to, to, to spend going after this whole sort of, you know, crooked, uh, crooked group. But he brings them in, and identifies them as co-conspirators, presumably to increase pressure on them to cooperate. I mean, he's 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 sending the signal that they are in danger of criminal liability, right? Like if he doesn't because he could have just identified them as a lawyer otherwise, if he didn't believe that they were a part of a criminal scheme. Correct. So, There's no question that he thinks they're part of the conspiracy. 
The question is whether he wants to take on proving it beyond a reasonable doubt. I here's here. Okay, I'll make a we'll make a bold prediction. Uh, I'll 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 put I'll put something out there. If there's anyone who's charged, the one who's most likely to be charged, and I think their signs are pointing to yes, like Magic Eight Ball, it's Rudy Giuliani. Ber- Bernie Carrick seems like he has a lot to say to the prosecutors. Uh, he, this is a guy who's already been to prison, if I recall correctly, uh, got pardoned. Uh, I think he doesn't really want to go to prison again. He's old enough where maybe, you know, that's 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 a substantial portion of his remaining life. I wouldn't be surprised if Smith is working towards a Giuliani prosecution because Giuliani is a mess. Um, ever, no, he, he can't take the stand. Uh, he's said all sorts of crazy things. He's basically like... Um, a worse version of Trump. I mean, if, from a defense perspective, he has none of the upside and all the downside. So, you know, the, the question, I think it's harder, you know, do, whether he takes on someone like Chesbro, Cheeseboro, whatever, Clark or Eastman or some of them. I, I think Eastman um, is the most likely of the group. It would be the most, the, the one I would be take on of that crew. But um, even there, you know, Eastman is a more rational actor than either Trump or Giuliani. Like he's not going to do crazy things like just go on Twitter and just start, you know, giving or whatever it's called that nowadays. And just so giving there, there are interviews of him that have surfaced where he's very clearly saying that the exact legal theory that he that later promoted, like, is not a thing. Um, so well, there's maybe that. I'm over speaking that. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think for, remember, let's remember that Eastman and Clark were originally in the crosshairs of the justice department well before they started, they decided to actually go after Trump. Um, and so I think, I think for sure that Smith will go after Eastman. And I think he has to go after Clark because Clark was acting as an official as a government official as and and as a you know he was in the justice department mm-hmm. um i cannot see how you let this man go when he was willing and and his conduct was there wasn't even even the pretext of real legal advice like he literally made up a letter that he wanted to send to georgia again going back uh, to the, the concept of legitimizing propaganda telling Georgia that the Justice Department had found evidence of voter fraud when it did not, when it had not, um, uh, and giving and telling them that they sh- they were authorized to convene, I mean, interfering in their state, you know, matters. I mean, it was crazy. That whole letter was crazy. And I believe that just as a matter of example um, and morale for the rest of the Justice Department, he would have to go after him. Yeah, I mean, I don't look. I don't disagree. I would charge Clark myself as well, but it, it's not going to be as easy. I, if I was charging Clark, honestly, I would consider having a much more streamlined indictment. I, I would go after if I was going to go after Clark. I would almost consider a thousand one count. I was just about statement. to say, like false statement yep. seems pretty sta- like if they're yep. in black and white. That's you got him on that. You got him on the false statement because he wrote this letter saying we have these investigations and there's allegations of voter fraud. And you should consider pausing your thing. Uh, your your uh, electoral uh, certification process in Georgia. And he was told by the attorney general and others at the Justice Department, acting attorney general and others at the Justice Department that, you know, the investigation was over. They had found nothing of any substance. Th- this was outside the bounds of what the Justice Department should do. And 
um, you know, he had no authority to do it. And he was doing, you know, catching this plot anyway. Like that to me is super straightforward and narrow. And just that's a that's a straight up easy trial. What I'm referring to is like, you know, the, the, the issue for Smith is he's kind of committed himself that these people were all part of the grand conspiracy. And so if he's going to model that and have like some, let's say, separate indictment where he lays out the same grand conspiracy and throws them all in it, then he's taking on a lot. And it's just a lot of energy and resources and attention focused to a trial that is not the main event. That's the undercard. Well, why can't uh, right? he wait until? I mean, yeah. he has until uh, I mean, that was what, 2020? Yeah, he has until after the election. Sure. Of course, theoretically, yes. I, 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 but I think, uh, th I think theoretically, yes, he does. I mean, he can even hand it back to the Justice Department at that point and say, "Here's like, here's my report. He, you know, I I got approval to prosecute Donald Trump. I'm handing this back. Here's like kind of like what Mueller did. Here's all the evidence that I've gathered, and these are, you know, the conflict of interest is not is no longer there anymore. So you guys decide what to do." And then it's up to Garland between whenever the Trump trial ends and, you know, the the new administration is sworn in, which could be a Trump administration to decide what to do. Yeah. Jeffrey Clark could be the attorney general. He's I think, you know, according to I think uh, Jonathan Swan and some of these people who have good sources in the Trump world, like he's the favorite to be attorney general in the next administration. Yeah, I, I think another possibility, I mean, you know, you're saying to wait is that he's waiting to see if his evidence gets better. Right. In other words, now more people are coming in. They don't want to be in do, included in the next indictment. And frankly, he'll get more evidence in a Trump trial. OK, because he's going to get Trump potentially, you know, maybe Trump will take the stand. Certainly some associates may take the stand. So there's there's that element as well. I mean, I think that's interesting. But, you know, the bottom line, just from a very high level is there are more defenses here. And I don't want people to I don't want a lot of angry comments here. That's just the reality is Smith is doing something that's pretty unprecedented here. He's ch making these charges that have never really been brought in this way before because the conduct has never been done before. It's so unusual. Yeah. Right. It's not like, you know, people. Federal, there's you can go on the DOJ website and you will find cases where federal employees and contractors keep documents after they leave. They get charged with willful retention and they plead guilty. That that's like pretty standard. There's lots of cases where people delete video and try to hide documents from the government. And those people get charged. Like you can look those cases up. This is a one of its kind case and so it's just it it's complicated uh mm -hmm. to uh to to try and it's going to be complicated uh, to overcome some of the interesting and unique defenses that the Trump uh, team are going to come up with and his, and his associates are going to come up with. Yes. Well, we'll see what twists and turns Smith has. So what have you got for Mar-a-Lago? Yeah. So Mar-a-Lago, well, we'll just say, by the way, before we move on uh, to Mar-a-Lago, I will just mention there's this whole thing about the protective order. I have talked about it on TV and so on, but I do want to mention there has been a fight over the protective order. One thing I think was very telling, Asha, before we move on is uh, the, the judge denied like a three-day extension of time to respond to concerns about the protective order. That's a very good sign for Jack Smith trying to get his trial done quickly. And the protective um, order, just as a reminder, this is about publicly discussing the evidence that Smith is handing over 
to the Trump team. It's not even like, yeah, it's just revealing the evidence, sensitive evidence that's turned over. And what kind of sensitive evidence would that be for the January 6th case? I mean, obviously, like in Mar-a-Lago, we have classified documents and that it has its own, you know, set of issues and SIPA. But what are we talking about here that Smith would not want to be Mm -hmm. in the public sphere? Well, first of all, let me just say this is very, this is not, this is a pretty standard thing that happens in, of you know, I wouldn't say a majority, but a very large percentage of civil and criminal cases. Um, mo- you know, many or most of the cases I work on have protective orders. So you know, one company sues another company. You have a protective order because you don't want their sensitive, you know, internal company documents, right. you know, out in the public or whatever. And so this is pretty just standard fare. Essentially, there is a dispute over the scope of it. That's all it really was. That the Trump team was making, and they had all this sort of hoopla that they put in their stuff around it. But it was basically just like, well, you know, Smith wants to protect the interview reports of his witnesses. We don't think okay. that should be protected. And but everyone agrees that there's certain maybe personal information or private information or sensitive government information, like documents from agencies or something that mm-hmm. we and we don't know. But but various categories that every both sides agree should be protected. It was basically, though, the inter- to me, you know, it was just a stall tactic on the part of the Trump team. Smith is like, I'm already calling them out on that. And I'm also calling Trump out, by the way, on he also called Trump out on his like truth social, like, hey, I'm going to get you stuff like where Ooh. Trump, you know, his vague, like, I'm going to get if you come after me, I'm going to get you, w- which was interesting. And I and the before we move on to Mar-a-Lago, I will just say that. You know, a lot of people are like, does this mean Trump's going to get thrown in the slammer during the dependency of the uh, pretrial portion because he's he's truthing stuff out? The answer is no. Um, you know, he's got a First Amendment right to go, you know, to say, you know, rough things about Mike Pence. And the judge, because she's a pretty savvy, experienced litigator, is not going to get in the middle of that. But what she's going to do is get pissed if if Smith keeps raising these issues and she keeps after dealing with these problems. It's just going to inspire her to get this case done quicker. It's going to inspire her to maybe not give him the the close calls. Uh, and it's just it's a really stupid idea to be to uh, if you're Trump attacking the Trump yeah, yeah. the, the the judge and everyone else. Yeah. Mar-a-Lago, I guess you know regarding that, you know what happened, Asha, that I think is interesting. And I I thought of you when it happened. I thought <laughs> I'm like literally I thought of Asha is. You know, up until now, in the in the Mar-a-Lago case, basically what's happened is kind of indistinguishable from a regular judge. It, it's almost like you know how um, in Men in Black, you have like, you know, there'd be like a human being, and then like they would cr- like aliens would crawl out of the suit or something. Like they were really like there'd be like a, it, it looked like a human being, but actually there's like an alien underneath. So essentially, like Judge Cannon was indistinguishable from a regular judge, roughly up till now. And then she issues this ruling out of nowhere where she says, there's this issue that no one's raised, neither party raised, but I'm very concerned that an out of district grand jury is being used to investigate aspects of this case. It was like out of nowhere. Like maybe she heard on Fox News. Maybe she was like browsing the internet. It was just bizarro. And it made me think of the name that you give her because it was just like literally um, out of left field. And it just reminded you that like, no, this is, 
we still have Judge Cannon on this case. Like, this is not just a regular judge. Yeah, and I call her Loose Cannon. So she sua sponte came up with this allegation. Yeah, I was going back and forth with the journalist trying to understand this. I'm like, you were in the courtroom. Did, like, any, did anyone, like, raise this? You know, and he's like, well... Somebody said something about it many hearings prior, but it was had nothing to do with, you know what I mean, the particular issues in front of her. And I guess I, I had always kind of, cal- you know, calculated into my view of this case that Cannon was the judge. Like I was always a like, bear, like not optimistic about this case going to trial quickly because it's Cannon and all that. So this doesn't surprise me, but it's just, yeah, it was just like out of nowhere. Like, hey, by the way, I'm very concerned that out of, Districts, you know, DC uh, grand jury is investigating this stuff. Why is that? You know, that that sort of thing. You 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 know, you need to brief this, and it's like, you know, that's not your job. Your job's not like to come up with legal theories for the parties to brief and consider. yeah, yeah. Like she's like do doing her own little investigation or something. Um, yeah, she's like a research assistant for for the parties. Or I something. mean, is I it, it had just independently of that is that true is there an out-of-district grand jury that's still investigating stuff related to mar-a-lago there may be i mean the and would fact that be of the a problem is, for the case that smith has brought if it's for other people or whatever well who knows i mean we don't know all the details but you know obviously aspects of the scheme occurred in dc so right it's not crazy to investigate it in dc there's nothing in and of itself that's problematic there to me it's like you know, if a defense, if I was a judge and a defense attorney raised this, not a judge, but a defense attorney, I'd be like, okay, well, that's interesting. Thank you for sharing that. You know, it doesn't seem like, it seems a little early to be concerned about it at this point. Like, get back, it says you get back to me when someone's charged and there's some basis to claim that it's inappropriate, but it's just, right. it's not ripe for us to be considering this issue right now because it's just, it just seems like nothing has happened. It's speculative. Because I'll just throw out there as I'm thinking about it now. I mean, one loose end in the Mar-a-Lago scheme, at least one I can think of, is Cash Patel. Cash money? Cash money, Patel. Um, and, I, you know, I, I suppose, like, he, he's somebody who could still be brought into that net at some point, right? Sure. Absolutely. Well, he's the guy who allegedly, he claims, was there in the room when Trump exactly. made some sort of b- standing order or whatever it was, right? Correct. Yeah. The, 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 um, the secret, telepathic, unilateral, preemptive, irrevocable declassification. Yeah. He happened to be the only the one stupid there. Stupid defense. That was my acronym. When that happened. Only happened to be, he happened to be the only one present. In that key conversation. Yeah, who knows? But it's just, it's sort of bizarro for a judge to be concerned about that. But I have to say, because I, one journalist reached out to me, he's like, why haven't you tweeted about this or whatever? And I'm like, it's it's hard for me to get outraged because it's sort of like, this is just what we expected, right? I mean, does anyone like surprise that she's It's like she had like like her own little temper tantrum in her court. And it's just sort of like, this is what we expected. Yeah. This is like less crazy than anything that she had done in that prior case so i'm just <laughs> it's like okay this is actually kind of mild for her so whatever yeah um, she just fired loose cannon you know yeah well oh, it's her again cannon firing um yeah so we'll see what happens there it's been interesting yeah. that we have you know that the focus has has moved over so much happening yeah 100 100 percent
So Asha, before we go, I am, if you're watching the video, you could see that I'm leaning down because I have a little doggy who is leaning against me. He's very, uh, he's been missing me this morning. Um, but I do want to, I got to tell you a story about Henry. So in our area of the country, we, even though I live in a suburb, we have coyotes um, in our area. And that's actually a bit of a menace. Like people's dogs get attacked and killed by coyotes. So my wife has been absolutely afraid when she walks the dog of maybe she's going to encounter a coyote. What's going to happen to little cute little Henry if a coyote comes and tries to attack Henry? And what we learned um, is when the coyote, there was a coyote who encountered my wife and came and was interested in her and Henry. Um, Henry is like totally street. Like he is extremely, he looks very cute. He's got beautiful, like poofy ears, but he learned a lot in the streets of Puerto Rico as a young pup. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he's a little as, as young pups in Puerto Rico do. Yes. So on the streets of Puerto Rico, because when we got him, like we had the Puerto Rican people told, like told that, that they were taking care of him, said that he was like a, a Sato, a street dog or whatever, and this and that. And he had a little bit of a, some missing fur. So we weren't sure. Um, but that coyote is like scared, was like absolutely scared to death of Henry. It took every all of my wife's strength to make sure that Henry did not take down and do something very violent to the coyote. Yeah. So Henry is the enforcer of our little suburban neighborhood and protecting us from the coyotes. And ever since then, now, ever since that episode with the coyote, he stands watch on the landing of our stairs. He's like watching out. So like, look and make sure the coyotes are not coming. Oh, that's um, so cute. He was very cute. In fact, that night he came by my side of the bed because he was for the first. He was very concerned that night, um, and so I had to comfort him. But he was like, he he did what he had to do. Like he was he was very tough, very strong dog. I so. love that. Well, my pancake update is that you know I was gone for almost two weeks. And poor pancake. Uh -oh. I mean, I had I had kitty concierge coming twice a day. Um, and kitty kitty concierge, concierge. Yeah, that's my cat sitter. She runs a company called Kitty Concierge. So she comes for you know an hour twice a day and plays meditation music and um, plays with him. And you know she has um, what is it? Catnip Saturday, Spa Sunday. Like she's got like different little activities oh that, that she does. So, you know, he was in good hands, but he's such a social cat. He's a dog cat. So he's a dog cat. Wait, how, he's what? a dog cat because he just always wants to play. He's very social. Um, he's learned to play fetch with hair. He's ties. not like plotting to kill you. Isn't it like what most cats are no, doing? No, he doesn't. He just <laughs> wants to play. He wants to play and he wants to like hang out and he's, he's learned how to play fetch with hair, with hair ties. He's obsessed with hair ties. And if you throw a hair tie, he chases after it and he picks it up and he brings it back. And then that's amazing. wants you to throw it again. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's he, he plays fetch better than Henry. <laughs> yeah. Only when he's in the mood though. I'm Francis Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. 
You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Give.